Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 78 of State of the Game, the, bo- the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. And this week, one event has overshadowed all others as what matters, that, of course, being the loss of the game's great, one of the game's great real treasures, Peter Thompson. A five-time winner of the Open Championship, Thompson was oh so much more than just a golfer. His contributions to the game extending to writing, administration, and even being instrumental in starting what is now the Asian Tour. Thompson was a man of dignity and eloquence, a thinker and a forthright speaker. And just as it was better for his input, the game will be worse for his passing. Today, I'm joined by regular co-host Mike Clayton, who will also fill the role as guest for episode 78, as we look back on the life of one of not only Australia's, but the game's great exponents. Clayton's sad, of course, that Peter is gone, though, as you pointed out in a touching tribute early in the week, 88's not a bad knock. Can I take you all the way back to your first first memories of Peter Thompson? Well, there was a tournament at Metropolitan in Melbourne, the Australian PGA, in 1968. And before I even played golf, my dad took me to watch a golf tournament because he played. And, uh, he, I remember him just saying, there's Peter Thompson. He's the best player here. We'll go and watch him. So we did. And he was, so he was a god in my eyes. He was, the, he was the best player in Australia and, at the time, one of the best players in the world. And I didn't know what I was watching, but um, he won the tournament and confirmed that he was the best player there. And I remember he had an amazing – I thought it was green, but he told me it was blue. Aston Martin in a car park. Walked out. My dad said, that's Peter Thompson's car there. I can still see where it was parked in the car park there. And I think these guys have their own jets now, but a golf pro owning an Aston Martin was pretty flash in my time. Yeah, it, 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 That reminds me a little bit of, of – um, and one of the things I wanted to come to fairly early. Thompson sort of looked on Norman von Neider quite similarly, didn't he? I've got Thompson's book in front of me, as I'm sure you have. Adrian Logue, who's a co-host of ours on I Seek Golf from time to time, uh, tweeted this out, which didn't get the reaction I thought it deserved twice. But I love this part in the book where Thompson talks about Von Neider. I remember Norman Von Neider showing me in his room in Aaron's Hotel, Sydney, a wardrobe so full of slacks of all colours that you couldn't see past them. I'm sure he had more slacks at that time than any department store. And he talks about what Von Neider told him about that. And then Von Neider said to him, he even took me to the barber shop to make sure my hair was cut properly and told me to never wear a hat. A head of hair like yours will be priceless where you're going. <laughs> he said, yeah. wonderful, isn't it? So Von, Von Neider was really his mentor. He, he and a guy called Harry Young, who owned a hotel in Melbourne, who was a member of Victoria. But Von Neider was the one who took him around. He took him to Europe. I, the first year they played it, they shared their prize money which was not uncommon for the time. Wow. In fact, when I turned pro, I turned pro with a friend of mine, John Kelly, and I might have suggested we do the same thing, which was uh, the idea of doing that was sort of preposterous. I mean, I, pros of this era wouldn't even thinkable. know that thing existed. But, <laughs> no. you know, it was Von Nida's way of saying, don't worry about the money, I'll make enough, and if you run short, then I'll share it with you. So, of course, I think the first year he went to Britain, he finished second in the Open, and he was away right from the start, but Von Nida helped him a lot, I think. Mm. Gave him the confidence to turn pro and uh, travel with him and show him the world as a, as a young man. It, it speaks to something about Thompson, which is probably misunderstood by a lot, isn't it, Clay? Thompson sounded very kind of upper crust and, you know, he, he spoke very clearly and in sort of clipped tones and probably gave a lot of people the wrong impression. He was, of course, from a, a working class background, but never saw him. We always have seen him, well, I've always seen him as something special. He never saw himself there. He's just part of that progression of professionals over time. He always saw his own place and, his, and had a great perspective about where he stood in the game, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he 
grew up on the other side of the river in Melbourne, like most cities probably. There are two sides to the to the city, and he grew up on the other side as people who grew up on my side. Well, the side of the city I grew up on, he grew up on the other side in a place called Brunswick and played at a little nine-hole public course that's still there. But, yeah, he it's, it would be not fair to say he reinvented himself, but he, but he certainly... Um, People assumed that he came from the from the upper crust, but as you said, but no, he didn't. He, he was a you know, working class boy who took to the little public course at Royal Park and learnt to play. And before long, he was playing at Victoria on the other side of the river and meeting a you know the the other side of the, the society and the world and turning himself into a well-read, intelligent, smart, well-spoken, articulate, kind, everything that you could praise a man for. He was really, mm. I think. You once compared Peter Thompson in my company to the French without the language that accompanied that summation. Tell oh, the listeners yeah. what, you, what you told me about Peter Thompson. Well, I think I said about the French, if, if I'm Pe- right. Someone the, said that Thompson French, was arrogant. right to be arrogant. That's They've right. got the best architecture in the world, the best food in the world, <laughs> the, the best language in the world. They've got a right to be arrogant. Yeah, um, yeah pe- people thought him arrogant, but he wasn't. He was He was humble him, and, and he, he was always – understated and downplaying what he'd done but he had a right to be arrogant because he played the game so well and with so much surety and he he was almost contemptuous of people who tried hard and got themselves turned in knots and got angry because he never saw the point to any of that because he is he had the game in perspective but he found the game so easy and I'm never sure if I'll try and get this figured out I'm never sure if he he found the game easy because he thought really simply about it or he thought really simply about it because he found the game easy. I'm not sure Which came whether first. the chicken or the egg came mm. first, but he grew up in an era in the 30s and for well, the 40s, really, when he would have started playing golf. When Gene Sarazen and that, that old-fashioned low hands, um, no big leg drives and reverse seats, that old, what, what we would have referred to in the seven as the old-fashioned old swing. He grew up with that as his model, and, and he, I suspect he had a great-looking move when he was 17 or 18. I mean, he won the state amateur in Victoria when he was 18 years old, and I think won the Open at 21, Australian Open. So he's clearly a great player early on. But, but our, my generation grew up encumbered by visions of Nicholas and Weisskopf and Miller and you know what we thought of as, as the modern swing and in truth it wasn't a great model to copy. In fact when Ledbetter started teaching Felder he really went back to Sneed and used that as his model and when Dale Lynch and Steve Band, two coaches here started really getting into teaching full time, Thompson was their model. I mean, you know, he, he was the model they used for Aaron Badley and so whilst not an old-fashioned swing at all. You watch it now; it was just it was just a great golf swing. Well, of course, we have and, been watching it now, haven't we, Clates? Because well, every yeah. man and his dog has been posting a video of Thompson's swing, which is just an extraordinary action. And I've been tweeting these all morning because they're such gems. Is he wrote in his book? I've never analysed my own golf swing. I did see it once on a movie, and it shocked me so much I never looked at it again. And he advised players against looking at their swings on video, didn't he? He told me that. He said, I thought my swing looked like Sam Snead. And then I saw it and I was just horrified by it. So I never watched it again. <laughs> Which was, yeah, of course, it wasn't like Sam Snead, but it was, it had lots of Hogan about it. And it was, 
I mean, you, you watch the usual footage of him swinging in Britain mainly, and I mean, it was such a beautiful move. I mean, it was like, what can go wrong with that? And mm-hmm. not much ever did. Yeah. So, and he was, you know, he was, he's, he was typical Tom. I mean, he was, he was a self-admitted bad bunker player. And I'm not sure where it is in the book, but he said, I didn't want to be a good bunker player because I didn't want to go in them. Mm. So, you know, if I'd been a good bunker player, perhaps I would have gone in them more often, but I really avoided them like the plague so, because I wasn't any good out of them. Mm. So, so that that would have been his logical way of most players would have gone about spending hours in the bunker practicing to, trying to figure it out. But he said, "Well, I just won't go in them." He's, of course, sorry, Graham yeah. Marsh, who was one who he took under his wing and helped a lot. He was he was an even worse bunker player. Marsh was a terrible bunker player, but um, but but played the game very much like Thompson. I asked Marsh once who was a we were on the practice range at Royal Porthcawl in a senior event. Marsh drove it like an arrow. And I said, who was the straighter driver, you or Tomo? And he said, oh, he was. He said, but he used a three-wood a lot, which was true. He did. He paid no attention to how far he hit the ball. Mm-hmm. I mean, much different from today's game when it's all about how far you hit it. Okay. He, he hit the ball into play with, in tennis terms, what would be a second serve, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And That's a lovely analogy, just, actually. Yeah. A second and serve, just yeah. went from there. Yeah, you know, he didn't care if he was hitting a three or four under the green because he was such a great long-line player. And so much of the game in Britain was about the force you hit the ball with and where you landed it and you used the ground to get the distance out of the ball. You landed it short and bounced it up. So it wasn't as though he had to be, you know, he, he would, uh, I'm not sure what he would have made of uh, the, the, the uh, I've, I've had a complete blank, um, the shots to hold. Um, oh, strokes gained. Strokes gained where, you know, it tells you that you score lower if you're 120 yards away than if you're 150. Of course, that's logical. But he would go, well, that's only if you're a bad player from 150 yards, and you know. <laughs> so he paid no attention to, to the fact that you'll, you score lower if you drive closer to the hole because that wasn't. And, and in part, that's a product of the golf courses they play in America now. It's soft, and of course, the lower you, the closer you play, the lower you'll score. But for him, it, you know, the courses he revered in Britain were much more sophisticated than the day-to-day tests on the US tour. There's so much wisdom in this book, Clates, that. And I know you've spoken about this before, that you know you look back now and think about yourself in the 70s, 80s, man, all the mistakes you made about thinking that everything from America was great and that the Miller-Weiskopf move and the reverse, all these things were the necessities and the way forward were all the same. Young up-and-coming professionals or players who want to become elite could do a lot worse than read this book, couldn't they? I think a blend of Thompson's old-school wisdom and some of the technology and the thinking about of the modern game, but without what Thompson knows, some of that other stuff is kind of wasted and... Players can waste a lot of time, can't they, with modern technology? Absolutely. And, and he was he was huge for not only on the course but off the course in self-reliance. That's why he stood for the Liberal Party, not the Labor Party, and which is not a commentary on his politics at all. But, but he was hugely into self-reliance and making your own life. And uh, and it was the same in golf. It was you were, he, he thought you were much better off working it out yourself and thinking about it yourself and figuring out your own problems but rather than being told what to do. And I think certainly modern players uh, uh, very often leave it to their teachers to tell them what to do rather than, rather than working the problem out themselves. Mm. And that might be a quicker way to do it. But he, he would always have argued that you're much better off in the long term if you've worked it out yourself. So he would just go to the, he would go to the golf course. And he wasn't a great practicer. He would go to the course and play and hit shots. And Peter Ellis told a great story about Tomo before one of the Opens he won in the 50s, he said, here he was on the range shanking the ball, literally shanking the ball. 
And, and Alice said to him, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm just going to pack up and go home and think about it. <laughs> and he would have just gone back <laughs> to the hotel and thought about yeah. it. Didn't go to the range to fix it, being the point. No. Because he was a shanker. Yeah. You know, his bad shot was a shank. If, if, and I suspect it was because older clubs, probably the sweet spot was closer to the neck. And if he did hit a bad shot, he would shank it. And and I, I, a couple of guys I know, Caddy, in fact, the bloke I still play with at Metro, Caddy for him in, at PGA in 968. And he had a couple of shanks on the eighth hole. Into the, and he said, he just, you, you never would have known what he did. He just walked in there and hit it out and never said a word or never reacted or just. Yeah, he had an extraordinary non-reaction to yeah. bad shots. He just accepted them and moved yeah. on. And, and, and mostly he didn't blame himself. I remember playing a practice round with him in Japan one year. We were amateurs and Grades and I were playing with him. Grades was a pro. I was still an amateur. And he had a Dunlop driver he was trying. He was always trying clubs out, always trying clubs out. And he had a new driver and he hooked it off a off, whatever tee it was, early in the round. And he had always had strips of lead tape on his bag. And he took a couple of strips of lead tape off his bag and stuck them on the toe of the club and hit it straight. And he said, that was it. <laughs> you know, because you put more weight in the toe, it won't turn over so quickly. And, you know, it was the forerunner of that, you know, moving the weight around on clubs. But, you know, it would never have been his swing that hooked the ball. It was, yeah, that's it. And he hit it straight. Fix the drive. You know, so, so he was a great deflector of blame in that way. And I, th- and I think all great players that do yes. that, they, you know, it's never their fault. Yeah. Interesting. Just to go back to you talking about sort of being self-reliant, you'll remember the, the hoo-ha that was caused a couple of weeks ago when uh, Jack Nicholas talked about the role of the caddy and he just wanted the caddy to be quiet and not that the players were taking much input and there was a, a lot of carry-on about that. Here's what, uh, here's what Thompson wrote in 1994. In my time, the best caddies would never speak unless spoken to. My feeling was that as long as he was punctual and sober, he knew the rules and was strong enough to carry the bag, he was fine by me. Having caddies line up shots is pathetic, really. It shocks me. Anyone who needs such specific assistance is not a top player. He doesn't have my full applause because of the fact that he's always running for help for something. If he did it on his own, I would give him all the accolades because of his achievements. It's pretty clear, isn't it? I don't think, don't recall there being a whole lot of horror about that opinion when it was expressed, but it's an insight into how the game's changed, hasn't it? This, this notion that golf at the top level these days is a team game, that nutritionists and caddies and the coach and the psychologists are all an important part of the team. Thompson just dissed all of that, didn't he? None of that. Oh, he would, he would have had out of contempt for the concept yeah. of the team. I mean, he was a, what, do it, do it on your own. Yeah. But um, I remember him, because he loved Sam Snead. He, he used to travel with Snead, room with him. He played with him a lot. He he thought he was the the, the best player he'd ever seen, and, and I think he would still have said that. But he said, he said Sam would ask his caddy what clubs he used, and he would hit it over the back of the green and go crazy at his caddy. He said, we couldn't believe it. He said, like, why are you asking your caddy anything? Because, of course, he... He'd grown up, well, of course, being incredibly sure of his own judgment. And I think players who ask caddies, in a sense, it's a way that they're not sure of their own judgment. And caddies have injected themselves into the game because they get paid so much money now, so they probably feel like they've got to justify their existence. And and, 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 I, and I was one who always asked caddy stuff, so far better for me to criticise caddies because they helped me a lot. But but he, he, again, it goes back to the self-reliance of making up your own mind. And he, and he would say... How does a caddy know how you're going to hit the ball? You know, hard, soft, left, right. What sort of shot you're going to play? What's your feeling? What's 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 going through your head? Yeah, so, so you're right. He would often turn up to a tournament in Australia, you know, the, the Victorian Open on Wednesday. Or, sorry, on Monday to play a practice round, 
And if there was a kid hanging around around the pro shop, was a caddy, he would ask him if he knew the rules, and he said, "Good, like he said, he said, good, you'll do me." <laughs> can you carry this? Can you lift that bag? Yeah, can you carry the bag? And so oh. Steve Williams, at yeah. you know, thirteen years old, caddy for him in the New Zealand sure. Open, and set him on his career path. And they remained but, quite firm friends too, didn't they? From yeah, they did. On, yeah, Stephen. Yeah, Steve loved Tomo because he gave him his yeah. starting golf, really. Yeah, and some credibility. The relationship with Sneed's an interesting, wasn't it? Do you think that goes back in part to Thompson growing up on the wrong side of the tracks, which, of course, Sneed famously did too. He was considered a bumpkin by many of his peers and and, and contemporaries, wasn't he, Sneed? A, a not particularly sophisticated sort of a sort of a guy. Do you think Thompson saw something in him perhaps that he recognised and, and liked about him? Because they were completely opposite, weren't they? Well, absolutely, yeah. I'm sure Sneed wasn't reading Tolstoy and listening to Marla. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they were much different, but I think he... Sneed liked rooming with him because he was quiet and calm and went to bed early and didn't fall around. And um, I, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure why they attracted each other. Mm. I mean, Thompson certainly was was a great admirer of Sneed's game, and I, and I, you know, I guess they I'm not sure why they attracted, but perhaps opposite attracts. But mm. you know, they, they saw something in the other that the, each the didn't have, and. Enjoyed their companies. I mean, they Sneed played at the Age newspaper. Bought Sneed down in 1973 to play an exhibition match with Thompson at Yarra Yarra. And it, it's amazing how many people still remember that. In fact, I was talking with a friend about it the other day, and there were maybe 10,000 people turned up to watch it. And it's, it's a window into how the game's changed. I heard the other day that one player. Paid nine hundred thousand dollars to play the Australian Open last year. Wow! And Thompson never took a cent of appearance money. Not once. He, he hated, hated it. The, didn't he? Hated, hated it. the concept of it. He said it was demeaning to demeaning. the event. Yeah. And it put the players who were being paid on a different foot because it already made a profit at the start of the week. And mm-hmm. when at a time when he played, when it was yet to play well to make a profit at the start of the week. Yeah. Well, but by the end of the week, the prize money they played for. So he had complete disdain for appearance money, the concept of it, and tried to stamp it out. And of course, that was a that was a, a no win battle. But how much better would the game have been off if if he if he'd won that battle? But you know th- those blokes who who posted on Twitter their condolences to Mary and what a great life he had should consider that just once they should come back and in respect to him and what he did and that he created the tour he created in Australia should come back and play for nothing this year in the Australian Open. In the Australian Open, all of them. We know that won't happen because their managers have got their greedy 20% out Mm. of the 900,000. Yeah. And, of course, not players at that. If you're commanding 900,000, Clates, you don't need to worry about your card. But, of course, the reality of modern golf is it's a very different time. As Thompson missed a lot of Australian Opens in the 50s, as he says in the book, because of a scheduling issue. It used to be played in August, and he just wasn't here. Players these days have different... They, they need to play for their cards to keep their cards in America. So the Australian Open suffers because of that and has done for a long time, I guess, because of international pressures. There's a lot of players who'd like to come back who don't have the opportunity necessarily. Well, you can't imagine why they played in August. I mean, it's bizarre, well, and I never knew that. It's bizarre. Well, yeah, the courses were probably better in August because they're all poor fairways then. They're not now. They're all... Bermuda for the Americans, uh, Cooch for the Australians, f- fairways in um, Australia now. But So the courses were better at that time of the year probably. I mean, now it's actually the worst time of the year for the courses. And, and they backed up the Australian Amateur. When Devlin won the Open in Perth in 1960, they played three weeks in a row at Lake Carinot. They played the Interstate 
matches, which was at six states, each have a team of seven players. So Devlin played that. Then they played the Australian Amateur, and then they played the Australian Open, all on the same course. Wow. So, and I don't think Tomo played in that one. Uh, that was 1960. Thompson didn't play in that Open. Some, I mean, but yeah, but it was in August, which was to think about it now. It's, <laughs> it's extraordinary. Yeah, and he makes the same point. Sensibly, they finally moved it later in the year because yeah. golf used to be considered a winter game. He says it didn't become well because the courses were better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the courses were at their very best in the winter, at their worst in the summer. And Royal Melbourne didn't have a watering system till the late 1980s. Yeah. So all those blokes who talk about well, the ball's going further now because of better conditions. Royal Melbourne didn't have a warring system until 1988, yeah. so the ball was sure as hell running a lot further in 1980 when the fairways were baked out in the summer. Yeah. But, uh, no, it was um, it, it was a much – the condition of the courses was much better in the winter than it was in Melbourne. Sorry, in, in Australia than it was in the summer. Yeah, yeah, indeed, extraordinary stuff. Just want to finish up on Sam because I want to talk about Thompson's writing and I want to talk about some of your own personal interactions with him as well, and I reckon there's four hours of – just each of those, but we're going to have to try and condense it. Um, this is what he wrote about Sam Snead, a beautiful tribute when Sam Snead passed in 2002. I love this line. Sam Snead was a unique talent. He died late last week, aged 89. That would have been the highest number he ever made in his long career. <laughs> just, yeah. yeah. What a delightful way to, uh, to sort of remember such a great friend and yeah. an extraordinary well, yeah, it's Kind of ironically almost the same age when they yeah, died. Yeah, and Palmer too, around, uh, around about the same yeah. time. Um, Clayton, of course, you mentioned there that you first went, you first came across Peter Thompson when you went to watch him as an up-and-coming elite player who would eventually turn professional, be successful as a professional. I imagine that you came to know him much better in the years that followed. When did you first meet Thompson? Do you remember your first meeting with Peter Thompson? I always found him very daunting. Uh, you know, to think to, I interviewed him once, and I was. Ter- in fact, it was when Sam Snead died. I was terrified before he came on the phone, and within a moment, I was completely relaxed. What a, what a joy to speak to, and a, a terrific and wonderful person. What do you remember about the first time you met Thompson? I don't know when I first met him. I think I, I assume it was the first time I played with him, which was the Victorian Open in 1977 at Yarra Yarra, and I. It was the third round. I'd made the cut, which was good for me. It was my first pro time. I was an amateur, but it was the first pro win I played in. And we got drawn together in the third round, and he got on the second tee at Yarra Yarra. And he hit the the first hole was a par three. I don't know what he did, but I can't remember. But he hit a drive right out of the neck on the second tee, straight into the trees on the side of the tee. And just put the, I couldn't believe it. Like, wow, good players hit shots like that. It was amazing. <laughs> and then he just, Put the club in the bag and moved on. And you know, we got we got to the ninth hole and I had a putt that lipped in. He said, "Wow!" He said, "You almost missed that." <laughs> <laughs> and um, he, we, we, on the on the fourth hole, before they uh, before they ruined the fourth hole at Yarra, it was an amazing little par three, domed over green, short end of the wind, hundred and twenty or thirty yards. It was a windy day, and I hit a good shot with a seven iron, but the green was t- tipped off on the left on the edges and it kind of landed left of the pin with a draw on it and caught the edge and went down the bunker. And he said, mm, he said, the wind got you there, didn't it? And well, actually, yeah, it did. You're right. And it was, he could be, he was so dry. And, and, and the people who got upset when they played with him, Billy Dunk would get upset and Jack and Newton early on because he would, they would think he was sledging him when he was just kind of, that was sort of the things you would say to each other in a friendly Saturday afternoon football, mm-hmm. which was his, his great skill in playing was he made golf look like that. He made it look so calm and simple. And why are you guys 
trying so hard? Why are you getting so stressed about this whole thing? So I, I guess that was the first time I met him was when we played together. Mm. And, and, and he would turn up at you know, state team practices. That, you know, the Golf Association would invite him to come and talk to the state team and he would practice with us and give us advice. Perhaps I met him at one of those before I – might have been the year before when I first made the state team. But, you know, he was always around golf. He was always speaking it. He would come to the most – boring dinners that none of us want to go to and he would speak at those and just having him there was amazing really do you but, mem- do you remember sorry go, sorry do you remember being on. sort of daunted or intimidated or any of those things ahead of those sort of meetings i mean clearly obviously as time went on you became quite close with with thompson i know that but early on did you find him sort of daunting or intimidating well i was nervous playing with him but no i didn't in, in fact i worked with a a friend of mine in uh, it was where I was when I heard John Lennon was shot. So that'll give you the time, 1980. Um, a friend of mine was making things called Peter Thompson putting mats, which were kind of putting mats with holes in them that you would, we'd send out in boxes and send them out and people would unroll them and practice their putting on them on their carpets at home. But So I met him there. Now he was just, he was incredibly normal. He was just a normal person. He wasn't, you know, there were no airs and graces about him or he was just who he was. And no, he wasn't intimidating at all, but, it was intimidating to play with him because you you were playing in front of one of the greatest players ever. So it was sort of you, you hoped you didn't make a fool of yourself and you, you played decently. Yeah. I'm sure you did sort of most of the time. When you talk about sort of help and mentoring and those sorts of things, we talked about Von Nider being sort of his mentor. Did he fill that role? You talked about him coming to state team practices and whatnot. Did he fill that role for people? I assume he was open if you wanted to approach him, but was he proactive in approaching young players and saying these are some things you need he, to think he, about? He was. He Well, he would travel with him up into Asia because he started the Asian tour really so so mm-hmm. and he would play practice with yeah he, he connected with everybody and people connected with him so so guys like Stuart Guinea helped a lot Graham Marsh enormously uh certainly Ian Baker Finch Ian was going out with his daughter and he he took Ian down to Sorrento where he had a beach house and uh, Finch had, had as everyone else did had copied Nicholas's action and he hit the ball with a big high soft fade which was you know, which is what Jack did and of course the only difference was that Finchie's big high soft fade went about 230 yards and but he played well he played well in the Australian PGA in 1981 he finished I mean, he played with Seve in the early on, on Saturday and they chopped 30 on the front nine holding everything and so Peter had taken an, an interest in him and he, he was going out with Pan and he took him down to Sorrento and the way Tom I thought about the game, he wasn't a teacher at all. Players who, where the game comes easily often don't make very good teachers because they don't understand how difficult it is. And he wasn't, I suspect, a great teacher of the technical side of the game. But he knew that the high fade was no good and the opposite of a high fade was a low draw and how do you hit a low draw? He said, Ian, put the ball back in your stance and swing the club around your ass." <laughs> and... Which was a perfectly logical way of hitting a low draw. And that's mm-hmm. what John Jacobs or Hank Haney probably would have told him. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But so Ian came out, you know, within – he came back from Sorrento it was sort of three weeks later and he was – he flattened his swing off and he was hitting low draws and the ball was back in his stance. And later in that year, he was second in the Australian Open at Kingston Heath. He got – which got him an exemption into the Open at St Andrews in 84 and Peter played practice rounds with him there. And he was leading with a round to go, mm-hmm. shot yeah. 79, but that was 
beside the point. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, you know, certainly his advice sent Ian on that path to winning his Open. Yeah. What a wonderful piece of advice. Just <laughs> put it back in your stance, swing it around your ass. We could all probably sort of yeah. try that. He says in the book, in one of the pieces in the book here, Clades, that um, he, he's okay communicating sort of thoughts about the game with top players, but he could never teach a beginner. He admits himself that he would never, he'd be useless in trying to sort of – he tries to. He said he tries to help his wife and his friends when they play, but really uh, he's got nothing really to offer except perhaps to a top standard player who's looking. He's there. He says he could, he could fix Tiger Woods in a minute, but of course he'd never seek me out. Which is, uh, which is, uh, yeah. He, he he thought Tiger was too static. He liked players that moved around, that addressed and waggled yeah. the club. And he thought Tiger was too tight, too rigid, too tight, too rigid, too yeah. jerky. I think he called it. Smooth yeah. players yeah. win, jerky players don't. Um, is, you know. and, and and he would be astounded by how crookedly Tiger drove the ball because he was, of course, you know, in the era of great Hogan and Snead, the great great drivers who just split fairways. He would, it staggered him how crookedly Tiger drove the ball. Yeah. And and the, the one person, talking about mentoring, the one person he said to me once, he said because they didn't get on really, they were much different people, and it wasn't it was a it was definitely not a case of opposite opposites attracting. Was Greg, mm-hmm. and God knows what he would make of Greg this morning. Did you see that? Oh, the body issue. I, I wrote no, it. I, I wrote that very thing. And Robert Lucetich had a fantastic response. But I said, you know, what would Peter Thompson think? And, and yeah, uh, wow. Lucetich said yeah. he would have offered him his coat, yeah. <laughs> which for, is the for, only dignified response to what we were subjected to this morning. Yes. For, fortunately, that magazine came out after he died. Yeah, very much um, so. I thought the same thing. I'm yeah. glad he oh, didn't wow. live to see this. Because, he just would have. What would? He, but anyway. he said to me once. He said, "I really think I could have helped Greg," but Greg. I don't think I ever asked him. Probably never would have asked him. Probably not sure. But and I've said it many times. I think if Peter had been able to play the last four holes for Greg in major championships, he would have won ten of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he was one of his great pieces of advice to Ian Baker Finch was walk out to the fifteenth tee and learn to par the last four holes because one day you'll have to do it to win something big. Wow. How simple and, is that? Yeah, you know, that was a pretty logical way of <laughs> yeah. think, learning how to play golf. You, you know, the track man is not going to be with you on the 15th tee at the Open, so no. don't don't pay much attention yeah. to that. Go out, go, walk out to that tee there and par it in it's, and, it's and an, learn how to do it. Yeah, it's an understanding he speaks about here. It's an understanding that it's not golf swings that win tournaments, isn't it? Once you get to that level, everybody can play, I guess, is the point. It's not your golf swing that's going to win the tournament. It's the – well, he talks about fear. Fear is deadly. It's much better to have hope. Uh, is how he describes it. You know that if you if you have fear, uh, you can't win. If you if you yeah. if you have hope, here's this is what he, he wrote about Norman. This was from 1995. Greg Norman is as always a curious personality, tense and edgy to start with, throwing verbal punches without too much thought, then showing a fierceness in his demonstration of his points. His golf though speaks for itself. That's typical Thompson, isn't it? He's got a criticism of Greg. But it, yeah. And he was the same with Woods. You could clearly tell in his writers he was no great fan of Tiger Woods, but he recognised in him the mental genius, uh, yeah, less so did. than the physical. Um, and he always said, yeah, he'll work it out. Take I remember him writing an, writing an article in The Age that Greg got upset about, and Greg went to the press tent, and, you know, was Peter's very negative and critical. You know, he wrote a great article talking about, you know, the, what's wrong with these players? I mean, Bill Rogers had come down and won the New South Wales Open, and different you know, different foreigners had won all the tournaments. And he was, he was in his own way putting a rocket up the Australian players, and you know, show us what you've got here. But Greg, you know, Greg took it completely the other way and thought he was being negative and being too critical. When he, in fact, he was saying, "Come on, you guys, get to it. What are you doing? And then, you know, these foreign guys are beating us. Start playing properly." Yes. Yeah. 
And it was, and Which it was, may well know, have been what prompted that passage I just read. That was November 22, 1995. So that would have been around the Kingston Heath Australian Open when Norman complained about the softness in front of the 17th green. Oh, yeah. Went out there afterwards. They had all the footage of him out there with the – who was the course super? <laughs> Graham Grant. Graham yeah, Grant Graham, telling yeah. him how he'd watered the front of the green. I remember that whole bit. And that was probably a response to that, I suspect. Mm. Yeah, and the – Peter wrote that in 1981, so, so, so the commentary was about, you know, the, the tour of that year, and you guys need to pull your fingers out and start playing better. 14 years later, saying yeah. unquestionably the same kinds of things. He, yeah. he, now, obviously, Thompson's legacy as a player is will live forever, and we all know him as the – in fact, he was known as five times, wasn't he? It was kind of a nickname. I don't know whether, whether people used it to him directly, but it was certainly how he was known around the place was, was five times. To me, Clates, his writing might be almost more important in a way, um, such wisdom comes through in his words, doesn't he? And he he he, he, he worked yeah. at writing too, didn't he? He's an incredible writer. He was he, he was. In fact, the guy uh, I, I was with a guy called Randall McDonald the other day, who was the managing director of the Age when Peter wrote, and Steve Perkin, who did the book with the book we're looking at. Mm-hmm. He basically stuck a tape recorder under his nose and recorded what he said. But Steve's dad was the editor of the Age before Randall. And he was the one who gave Peter space, and he would. Randall said, you know, he he would win an open and go into the press tent and type out copy for the paper. And I just want to pause and think about that for a moment. We've mentioned it on a couple of podcasts over time, but can you imagine anything like? I mean, Jeff Ogilvie is the only one I think who might that I can think of. I'm not saying that others couldn't, but that has shown an aptitude for putting words together in a way that's interesting and makes some sense. Can you imagine if I don't know? Rory McIlroy. Rory McIlroy. He could probably do it. Imagine him wandering into the press tent after yeah. winning the Open and punching out 25 pars on his own victory. Staggering. And, of course, <laughs> Mary Mary found out many years later that Peter had never invoiced the paper. Oh, never really? charged them. Yeah, you know, it was about 25 – I mean, Randall said it was about $25,000 in the end that we finished up, you know, because no, no one had ever thought to pay him. He just sent this stuff in and, you know, so, Good so Lord. that was – yeah, it was, <laughs> good look. Yeah, good lord. Can you okay? Can you imagine that happening in this day yeah, and age? Yeah, Rory McIlroy yeah. writing you a column and not getting paid for it? It's yeah, an extraordinary yeah. uh, state of affairs. He writes here in the book about about writing. And there's not a lot about it, but there's two pieces. From 1949 to 51, it was difficult to make a living as a pro. There was only a handful of tournaments a year, and the prizes were pretty small. Norman von Neider took me around playing exhibitions for money and I was able to pick up a couple of thousand pounds. Then there was some income from Dunlop and some other bits and pieces. But then I thought about golf journalism, that this could be a real job with a solid backing. I went into the Argus office, which was a newspaper in Melbourne, and met sports editor Bill Cust. I submitted something, which he read and said, now I want you to understand that not only golfers are going to read this, if your grandmother can't understand what you're writing, it's a lousy bit of writing. It was good advice. Make it easily understood. And I've always thought of my grandmother while I'm writing. Um, wow. And he said the same about golf courses too. He said, if you build a hole that your grandmother can't play, yeah. it's probably a lousy hole. Yep. Wonderful. So, so one wonders what he would make of the TPC hole. <laughs> he, 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 he talks about, you know, this is, Peter, this is Peter being critical. Greg Norman was not himself yesterday. He was Jack Nicholas. As a result of spending five days at Port Douglas last week playing skins games with his idol, it is now easy to mistake our man for a a younger version of the greatest winner of championships the game has known. On every shot yesterday, it was apparent that Norman had adopted the mannerisms of his role model, led to the point of addressing the ball. And that's Peter being wildly critical of Greg there, yeah. without saying it. Uh-huh. 
you know, he would have said, Greg, why are you copying someone else? What are you doing? Is he going? And, and I think, and in a way, you go back to that last day at Augusta in 96 when it was taking forever over the mm-hmm. ball, waggling and regripping and looking, and you know, his routine completely changed. And, you know, that was the ultimate manifestation of what I just read there was that, you know, Jack did what he did because that was what he did, and it was a great routine and it never changes. And Greg, in copying that, because it wasn't his own, his and own. when it mm. when it all went to shit that last day at Augusta, it was what he didn't have, you know, because because Peter would have said, well, he copied someone else, you know, it wasn't really his own mind that formed that, and you know, and and that was Peter being very critical of Greg there. Without, I'm not sure if Greg read it, he would see that as critical, but criticism but you know that that was how he went about things and how he offered advice and you know i wonder if greg ever read that but yeah and uh, it goes back to that point we made before that I, I think peter would have really helped greg because because they were so different and if greg had understood how peter thought and had got less stressed and less hit up and less you know but i'm not sure yeah it's, we'll, we'll never know but he, it was certainly one of peter's regrets yeah um, you you get the feeling it was perhaps Norman that wasn't open to it. That's always been my sense. And that's probably part of Norman's personality. I mean, you don't have the success Norman has had without an ego, do you? You don't do the body issue at 60 or whatever without an ego either, I suppose. It's part of his makeup, isn't it? And the criticism we make about Mickelson about his Cavalier golf has cost him titles is his Cavalier golf that's won him titles as well. You can't change people, can you? I suppose no, Thompson right, would have yeah. recognised that. He would never try to force himself on Norman, but I imagine he would have always been open to, to helping had Norman wanted to. Here's a beautiful, just two lines that sum up everything that he's doing. No two players are the same, although today they're all trying to play like someone else. What a wonderful observation. <laughs> well, which is, the, which is the, again, the Jeff Ogilvie quote is the, the best – Everyone tries to copy the best player in the world, yet the best player in the world never tries to copy anyone. Yeah, yeah. you know they're saying the same thing there. Yeah. It's a pity that Ben Hogan's greatest feats came just before television, for a video of those times would be invaluable today. For Hogan was the first player in the world who devised a strategy to counter the modern architect, and of course he hated what Trent Jones had done to Oakland Hills. Thompson hated the concept of long, rough, and narrow fairways. Mm-hmm. He took to driving short of the set trouble and risking a longer second shot. It paid off. He won five, five US Open, so he's doing the Jane Jenkins line of counting the one in 1942, and one British in brackets. He could have won five of those too if he had tried. <laughs> well, true. <laughs> yeah, true, yeah, absolutely. He was a big fan of Hogan, wasn't he? Um, no, he thought Hogan was an incredible player. And he, he really liked yeah. – uh, he really liked, I'll, I'll have to find it, but he says some wonderful things about Hogan not saying much. There was a wonderful line. Here we go. Hogan the quiet man. I got to like Ben Hogan. I was paired with him a lot because I was the perennial British Open champion. British Open, by the way. I know you're still one who calls it the British Open, but the whole the Open and Open Championship debate, I think we'll go with Peter on this one. He calls it the British Open, so that'll do me. Uh, And he was winning the US Open. He was extremely courteous. And for example, when it was not his shot, he got off the stage. Other illustrious players wouldn't leave the stage. They would get in your way visually, but he didn't. He's clearly talking about Palmer and Nicholas there, isn't he? Because he says later in the book, what big personalities they were and how they always yeah. felt that they should be yeah. the centre of the show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. That, but uh, what a wonderful sort of thing to say about Hogan. He had another line about Hogan. Uh, ben Hogan would go a whole tournament, that's four rounds, without miss hitting once. 
I've seen him do it. He was quite a contrast with Arnold Palmer, who could hardly go three holes without hitting one sideways yeah. or yeah. out into the trees or the rough. Yeah, yeah that, that's one of his great quotes. That one. <laughs> uh, the precision of Hogan's striking was incredible. I don't believe anybody has approached that, not even Nicholas. I don't think Jack achieved that special... One never really knew what was in Hogan's mind because he never showed any indication, but he was certainly a very deep thinker. I've learned in my life that people who keep their mouth shut are judged to be a lot wiser than they really are. Hogan knew when to keep his mouth shut. That's true, yeah. Uh, which is uh, which is wonderful, isn't it? His observations of players are really interesting, aren't they, Clates? His, his analysis, and I suppose this is where his writing perhaps is so important because we've got – if he just said these things on television, they're gone. If you remember them, you remember them. If you don't. They're gone into history, but he's, he wrote, wrote these things down, and they're such wonderful observations we can learn from, can't they? Particularly players, I think, his observations yeah, of other players. He could. And, and, the, and I mean, Graves hated him as, as a TV commentator. He thought he was too negative, and I love listening to him. He was a, and there was a classic story. Grant Waite was a ter- good player, Grant Waite. He won the. Really good player. I think he won the Kemper Open. Beautiful swinger. Yeah. And then, in fact, he would have annoyed Tom because he was such a great swinger. It's like, why don't you win more? You know, you, you should be winning everything. And a, a great swinger. And he was, Tomo was commentating on a New Zealand Open at Paraparam. And the guy he was with in the box said, well, here's Grant Wade. He said, promising player. He said, you know, he won in the Camper Open this year and tremendous play. He's doing very well. And, you know, Peter said, how old is he? He said, well, he's 32, Peter. He said, hmm. He said, I've won four Opens by then. <laughs> <laughs> which was kind of Tomo being arrogant a little bit, but he was making the point, you know, come on, he's 32, he, you know, he's not that promising. He, you know, he should have won a lot more by now. It's a, it's, it was true, he should have. Yeah. You know. It's a softer version of Hogan and McCord, isn't it? When yeah. McCord met yeah. Hogan and you know, Hogan says, what are you doing? He says, I'm a golf pro. He says, how many tournaments have you won? No, he says, well, you should look for another job. Yeah. <laughs> a, yeah. a wonderful yeah. thing. Here's what, he talks to, there's a, there's a chat, we're just going to jump around here. There's, there's just little bits I've noted that I think are fantastic. He talks about Bobby Locke and his relationship, his relationship with Locke and early on uh, he said he took me in dash he was between marriages so there was ample time dash and we played 63 rounds of golf what a beautiful turn of phrase that is you know so there was ample time because he was between marriages that relationship of course ended badly but the two of them it did it did end it was sad that one it was and it was all over for those who don't know the story uh, Bobby Locke had a three foot putt to win the open at St Andrews in 1958, I think, and playing with Bruce Crampton and Locke's coin was on Crampton's line and he moved the coin across, went to putt out, forgot to put it back, putted out, one by four shots. And only later that evening, perhaps or the next day, people had realised what had happened and Thompson never complained and, and never said, but Vonita did. And so thinking that something that had been an injustice, and Peter never thought that. He, he, he never thought that, you know, he had any right to win that tournament. It was Locke's tournament, and clearly, he, you know, he wasn't going to throw four putts from three feet. And, but that, but Thompson, but Locke thought that Thompson was behind that, when he clearly wasn't, and, and it was sad that it finished up that way. Mm. And he writes about that in the book about how yeah. it was, and it was just a shame that you know he sort of couldn't repair that that relationship. And the last time he saw him was yeah. quite sad because he he sort of by that time. He'd lost it. Um, here's an observation. Of, yes. Yep. Go. Speaking of, I've just come across, this is a funny story, I think. Speaking of guys who, and they didn't have a bad relationship at all. They were just different and they were the, the, the two biggest bulls in the pen in a small country in New Zealand. People expressed some surprise when I partnered with Frank Noble and Greg Turner in Melbourne. This was the President's Cup in 1998. 
I have respect for Nobolo and felt I could get going. Felt I could get him going. I can see why he was struggling. And Turner's a winner. I thought as two Kiwis they'd make a good combination, but then I learned that they didn't get that they didn't get on together at all. For the sake of the match, they decided to bury the hatchet, and they became very valuable. On the first morning of the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne, they beat Greg and Frank beat Mickelson and sorry, not Mickelson, um, Woodson. Duval and O'Meara. Duval and O'Meara, that's right, yeah. And and O'Meara, of course, that was at the end of the year where he'd won the Masters in the Open and Duval was just, he was either the best player in the world or he was certainly about to be. So they're a pretty formidable team and Frank and Greg cleaned them up, which was a a big surprise to everybody except anyone who knows Frank and Greg. And Greg was a a great player at Royal Melbourne and I'm sure Thompson had full confidence they would beat the Americans and they did. But it was funny. I only found out later that later. someone said, "You know these," you know, because I think, I think, perhaps he, perhaps they were his two picks. I'm not sure if one of them made the team, but he he certainly picked one of them and probably both of them. And he picked them because he assumed they got on well together and and they'd make a good team. <laughs> and only later he realised that actually they, these two guys don't get on very well at all. And in fact, it, it would be silly to call it a feud. They, you know, it was nothing like that at all. You know, it wasn't like that. No, they, just different It wasn't people. as though they disliked each other. No. They just they were just. Frank and Greg rubbed each other the wrong way. But because they were both blokes who would argue that grass was red if they, you know, the other bloke was arguing it was green. <laughs> Just a natural natural yeah. contrarian. Yeah. And, of course, both intelligent blokes. We see Nobolo on his damn – and Turner's written political yeah. column, so we know yeah. that they're both – they're liable to question. Now, you, you contrast that to, President, uh, to Ryder Cup preparations, Clates, where the captains are organising dinners and trips to the course a year in advance and know everything about every player. It's extraordinary that a captain of a President's Cup team wouldn't know that two blokes are particularly close. That's a staggering sort of uh, thing to consider in this day and age, isn't it? I suppose they're a bit like Thompson's theory on putting, is that if you just try to two-putt everything, you'll be amazed how many just luckily seem to fall into the hole. He's got a bit lucky there, hasn't he? He's tried to two-putt and he's, he's come up with a one-putt. Where's that quote he said where he said, I never tried to one-putt? He said, sometimes I even tried to two-putt from four feet. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. And he talks yeah, about how yeah. it's, uh, yeah. you, you're, better, you're better to hope to make from four feet than to expect because, you know, one can only bring a poor result and the other, you only stand to win. It was along yeah. those lines. It was beautifully written there. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that President's Cup in 1998, they, it, was the, it was the opposite of when Hogan made that famous however many line speech when he introduced the players at the Ryder Cup at Champions. I think 1967, the, the British captain, maybe Di Reese had gone through the you know great uh, long list of the accomplishments of his players and Tom Hogan stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen, the 12 greatest players in the world. <laughs> yes. And the match was kind of over. And in fact, Jack Nicholas wasn't even in that team. But Thompson, I remember the speech at the opening ceremony of the 1998 President's Cup, spent the whole time telling the Americans what great players they were and what a great <laughs> honour it was to play against them. And of course, brilliantly deflecting all the pressure onto them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. It was genius. So he was a, he was a, Genius psychologist. It's what an honour to play with you. The the greatest players in the world, and it's fantastic to see you all here. And that was brilliant, really. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that that uh, that President's Cup. It, it might have been as much the uh, the hot wind that blew from the north on, on day two that had an impact as well. I think, Clates, the Americans were completely befuddled by that, weren't they? It was, it was a brutal day, if I recall. Yeah, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, Annika yeah. Sorenston. Annika yeah. Sorenston make a fine study for those on the men's tour who have problems getting the best out of themselves. 
She has a keen golfing blend that applies itself to carefully planning of each round. She calls herself a grinder. But if that's true, so is Ben Hogan. For one thing, she never, ever tries to hit further than she can. Each shot is under firm control and her judgment of distance is amazing. As for her putting, she's in the Kel Nagel class, which she wrote for the age in 1995 at the Australian Open at, I suspect at Yarra Yarra, which I think she probably won. If she didn't, Katrina Matthew won. Katrina Matthew won her first tournament at Yarra Yarra. So, but I assume it was one that Annika had won. But, um, yeah, he was an admirer of anyone who was a, yeah, he would, and he, and he went to all those tournaments. He went and watched the women's mm. open and wrote about them. And, yeah, he, he was a, he was an ever present fixture at golf tournaments in Australia. He was always out watching and interested and writing about them and observing and, he was involved, wasn't he? But you, you get the sense that it's a criticism made of a lot of television commentators that you know they they turn up to the booth on Thursday and start talking. That you know we know there are a few who do make the effort to go and sort of mingle and watch those. He was one who, who I, I couldn't tell you how many tournaments I saw Peter Thompson at walking the fairways at the Australian Open in the early to mid two thousands. You would see him down by the third green. Um, and he was Peter Thompson. In fact, Tony Deer, who we're recording a book club podcast with next Tuesday for yeah. RC Golf, regales the stories at the 1997 Australian Masters. He's standing next to this bloke and he says to him, gee, you look like Peter Thompson. And Thompson said, I used to be, son. Which is a, a, a wonderful one. He talks like... So, and of course, why, why he was such a great writer, because he wrote about... He didn't ever sit in the... The only time he was sitting in the press tent was when he was writing. He, he, he went out and wrote about what he observed, observed, which was why his writing was so interesting. I mean, yeah. it wasn't. I suppose the journalists who have to report on the day's play need to be in the press tent to listen to the press conferences and interview players, and you know they're reporting on the scores and what happened. But he went out and wrote about yeah. what he observed. Reporting and writing a, are two different things. Clark, yeah, so completely. Is yeah, the, is the yeah. thing about it. If you if you need to have the details of the day, you've got to be there to accumulate them. If you just need to make some observations, which is, I guess, kind of what you do. With the, not to compare to Thompson in that way. I know you wouldn't be comfortable with that, but that's what you do at the Australian Open, isn't it? You go out and walk the course and listen and talk and, yeah. and watch, and, and yeah. that's what you, you can write about. You know, you don't have to write what Rory McIlroy said about the seven he made on the eighth hole. You can go and watch him make that seven and write about how he made it. You don't need yeah. to be there to get that, plus all the other stuff that goes on. I remember watching the, watched the Australian Women's Open this year at Kionga, and I was watching Jin uh, Coe, I think the girl who won. I, I assume it was, and she hit it in the trees because they never hit in the trees on the, on the women's tour. They hit it so straight, but she hit in the trees on the – and I was wondering, what the hell am I going to write about? And she drove in the trees on the left of the 13th hole, and it was quite an easy shot, I thought, to punch a low draw out up onto the ground. I mean, Sevy would have hit it on the green 10 times out of 10 from where she was, and her caddy advised her to just pitch it out 40, 40 yards short and get it up and down from there, which she did. But it was, you know, you just observe something like that, and, and, and there's a column in yep. how, you know, how that played out, but you can never – see that in the press tent. Got some reaction too, but I, actually I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you. I'm going to send you a link to a forum post about that particular column that you wrote. Not everybody not everybody was enamoured with your uh, opinions there. Uh, I think I saw that. I think I did see that. Yeah, there was some criticism there. That, yeah, uh, there was. I, yeah, what does this Clayton yeah. know? What's he talking about? He doesn't know what yeah, he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, I saw that. Like, yeah. you know, thought I was being critical of her. Yeah, I... I do remember some of that criticism. Mm. I thought, what are you talking about, mate? I mean, really? What are you talking plus about? It's, plus, it's only what I think. I mean, I don't care if you don't, don't agree no, with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As Peter would say, you don't have to agree with it. No. 
And this is the observation I was about to make, and I suspect the same thing is true of Peter Thompson, I don't know, but I do know about you. People will often say, because they know that I know you, they'll say things like, that Clayton, you know, he's he's up himself, he thinks he's right about everything, he's got an opinion about everything, and, and as I explained to them, he's more than happy to listen to other, you know, <laughs> other thoughts and inputs and opinions, and in fact, I've seen you accept and, you know, change your opinion about stuff because someone's made a point that you hadn't thought of, and... People don't. Yeah. When you write opinion columns for a living, people don't ever realise that, do they? Because you only get to write what you're thinking at the time. If that opinion changes later, then yeah, I get sure. to see that. But yeah. that's one of the uh, one of the dangers. Uh, Did you ever see that in Tom? I imagine you must have had some very long chats with him about all sorts of stuff, from the ball to course architecture. I know that the two of you thought very differently about golf course architecture, or certainly the aesthetics of the courses that the two of you have been involved in. Did you have much in the way of long conversations with Thompson about issues to do with the game? Yeah, because I wrote about him, and you know, you would go to his office and interview him. Well, interview him in a sense, but uh, I mean, he, he abhorred the the modern ball and what it had done to the game, how far it went. He hated that. He, he just, you know, he would, you know, the yeah, USGA and the RNA talking about, you know, perhaps they're going to do something about the ball. I mean, they have. What annoys me in that debate is they have. You can read what Mackenzie wrote about it. You, mm-hmm. Thompson spoke to them about it. He wrote about it. You, what annoys me is that, uh, and, uh, and the manufacturers is that they have no respect for the, the opinion of these, you know, the people who have a much greater, they cared about the game more, they understood the game better, they, they weren't driven by profit, but they were driven by what was best for the game. Uh, and the people on the other side of that debate are driven by profit and, and, and the, you know, the never-ending quest to send the ball further and make more money out of it. And he had complete disdain for people who thought like that. But yeah, we we spoke a lot. I think in course architecture, we fair to say I, I didn't ever really like the way he made his courses look because I think they were too mounded and too. Yeah, you know, I, I think he sort of, as a general rule, built pot bunkers as a formula rather than sort of building bunkers that he, he tried to suit a style to the piece of land rather than mm-hmm. finding a style that suited the piece of land. If that if that's a general criticism but but no we thought exactly the same about how the game mm. should be played and what annoyed me in a sense of about a lot of the criticism of Moodle Links which was of course he did purpose built for the Australian Open was that people detested the, the fact that there were bunkers in the middle of the fairways when in fact when we did Royal Queensland which is the closest thing in concept to Moon Links we built a lot of bunkers in the middle of the fairways and but but there was but there was space apart from one hole he did there which I thought was a bad hole the, the eighth there was always room to go around, moreover, mm. or, or left or right. Mm. So, so he absolutely got the concept because he understood the old course and, and revered it and thought it, the, thought it like Mackenzie, yeah. thought it the greatest course in the world. The, the concept of having the trouble in your road, not yeah, just putting stuff right. down the sides and asking people in between it. Yeah, indeed. Of course, what people really should have been upset about with Moodle Links was how long it was. Built, purpose built for the Australian. I think he described it as a leviathan, didn't he? Um, that'd be the starting well, point that you'd have to build a golf course that long to test the modern player. That was the real travesty of Myrtle Links in that sense. Well, and, and, but but the brief was, and, and 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 his view was that we don't have in Australia a course to rival Maltroon no. or, or or Muirfield or Carnoustie as, as a great difficult championship course, and it's true we don't. No. The only way we make our courses hard in Australia is make the greens hard and fast and mm-hmm. rely on the wind mm-hmm. because none of them, are, 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 certainly with the modern ball, play very long at all. Mm. Here's what he said about the ball. Technology shortens courses. Golf pole technology must change. I don't know what year this is from. Um, 
well, you'd probably pick a year, couldn't you? It could be anywhere from the 1980s right up till today. Fewer and smaller dimples so that the ball doesn't go so far. It's a sad fact that the modern ball has made courses shorter than they used to be. Even the old course at St Andrews has had to be stretched after more than 100 years. Although it hasn't made any difference, they still shoot in the low 60s. And Royal Melbourne's composite course has had a 60 played on it by Ernie Ells. So that gives you the date, doesn't it? Was that 2002? Yeah, I think technology means that now in my mid-70s I can drive almost as far as in my youth although my iron play is different as I don't have the strength I once had with different balls club players won't notice any change for a while but technology might take 50 metres off Tiger Woods' drive and 5 off mine this is a case that you've been making recently isn't it? let's test what rolling back the ball would do for everybody every swing speed and test the, long, the, the modern ball and then a reduced ball and see what difference it makes yeah. to each, each player the amateurs who don't want the ball rolled back assume that if you take 30 yards off Bubby you're taking 30 yeah, yards off them which yeah. I mean my, my suspicion is without any evidence is that that's unlikely you, you, <laughs> because you take 30 yards off Bubba it doesn't mean you take 30 yards off me or Mary Jones or whoever because they're the ones that picked up all the yardage and, and you know I might be wrong but I suspect that the faster you swing the club, you more you, the more you get out of the modern ball. Yeah. It's certainly the well, it's certainly the belief amongst most players that once you reach a, reach a swing speed of one hundred and five miles an hour, I think most people oh, say oh, with the driver, one hundred and fifteen, one hundred and fifteen or whatever. Once you get to that, you start to get far greater impact. Anyway, that's not what we came together to talk about. Did Thompson enjoy people disagree? I imagine you must have disagreed with him at times, no doubt, respectfully. But did he enjoy the the let's use a wanky term, the thrust and parry of a, a good old-fashioned argument or debate or disagreement about, you know? Yeah, I mean, every pretty much everything I ever read when I was young that he wrote, I disagreed with. He was he didn't believe in practice, and I thought, how can you be any good if you don't practice? And then I remember him saying once, I never tried to – I just tried to get off to a good start. I, ne- I never tried to birdie one of the first four holes. I just tried to – I never tried to do a long drive on the first hole – I never tried to hit the ball close to the flag, and I never tried to hold apart. I thought, why would you, why would you possibly <laughs> think that? And then, of course, when you get a little smarter, hopefully, you realise that it was perfectly logical. I remember Matt Goggin being on this podcast a while ago, talking about the importance of when he was playing with that played with Watson at that last day at Turnbury, and he spoke about the importance of surviving the first forty minutes. Mm. Yes. And, in a, in a sense, they're both saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Peter would just tee the ball up, hit it on the fairway, hit the ball onto the green, never aim at the flag, don't try and hold apart, don't give yourself a smelly four-footer coming back, just lag it up a foot short and tap it in and, and play your way into the rounds. You know, survive that first 40 minutes. And I, you know, he, he was rallying on about appearance money when my thought was as a young kid, well, Jack Nicholson, Dave Hill and Dave Stockton and Gene Littler and Arnold Palmer aren't going to come here if you don't pay them. And I love watching him play, so you have to pay them. And, but, of course, you look I – mean, I'm not – appearance money was a, always going to be a part of the game. What, what I abhor about it now is not the concept of it because you're never going to get away from it, but the amounts of it, the yeah. amounts of it are obscene. I mean, it's just no man, I don't care who he is, is worth a million dollars a week to play golf. And, mm-hmm. But the problem is that it's guys that – how they have so much money that they're so wealthy that why would you fly all the way across the world to play the Australian Open unless I'm, you're making a million dollars to play it? And it's just, you know, it's a cancer on the game and it's a cancer on the, you know, on, on the mentality of managers who've infested it and make what they came, come out of it, can make out of it. That, that you know, the, the game around the world has been reduced to 
paying these guys fortunes to play. And, and I can understand their point of view. They're, they're playing for $10 million in America. Why would I fly all the way to Australia to play for 1.5? And, and, and that's clearly an easy thing to understand because it's very easy to yeah, sit at home okay? in Phoenix or Florida. Or, does that but, make it but, okay, though, Clint? I mean, we seem to just give our blessing to this notion that whatever is in has the most money in it for you is just okay. And morally, there's some responsibility there. I've often always well, thought this. To the game, of course. I, mean, I think that you know, these guys who are – I'm watching Jordan Spieth on TV now, who, who played a bunch of Australian Opens and got paid a lot of money to do it, and, and won it twice, and was was tremendous. And, and did th- wonderful things for the tournament, and could yeah, not have been a yeah. better. Um, he couldn't have been a better champion. He couldn't have been better with the fans. With the pre- he did everything you could possibly expect of him for his million dollars a week. <laughs> I, I, I doubt these guys have any. It's never under their head that they've got some responsibility mm. to, to take their skills outside of Florida and California and Phoenix and New York and, and go around the world and sh- show people their games and get people to, give people a chance to watch them play. Because that was how, in the old days, that's what you had to do. I mean, Joe Kirkwood and Walter Hagen travelled the world making their money playing exhibition yeah. matches and, and, and they couldn't make a living just in America. So they would go to Britain and, and come to Australia and show off the game and get paid to play exhibition matches. And, and, and Nicholas and Palmer and Player came down here for relatively not much money at all because they were being paid by Stagenger to endorse their clubs and sell their clubs. And that, but they would go and play exhibition matches in country towns and you know th- th- things that – impositions that would be unimaginable to the yeah. modern player. If you, if you said to Jordan Spieth, by the way, while, while you're here, you, you have to go and play an exhibition match at Shepparton with the local club club. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, seriously? In fact, Spieth might be one of the few who – we've probably picked the wrong name there. He actually has proven to be somewhat of an international player in that sense. Yeah. Certainly well, earlier in his career. Yeah. Uh, but there's an awful lot that you could sort of point the finger at. Thompson walked the walk in that sense, didn't he, Clates? We talk about him, you know, being the start of the Asian tour and being – his contribution there is completely underappreciated, isn't it? I mean, he – and he, he writes about how he accepted that, that he knew that his presence was really what was required. It wasn't about putting in money. Or but if he went and played there, that that would grow the interest in the game from both the corporate level and from the fans, the two competing customer bases almost in a way. He really saw his responsibility there, didn't he? He did. And, and here's me now being critical of Greg Norman. Greg's content. You know, people yeah. think Greg Norman invented the world tour with Rupert Murdoch. I mean, if... You know, there's a couple of self-interested blokes of you saw. But, um, <laughs> there's a meeting you'd want to sit in on, isn't there? <laughs> what's in it for me? No, Peter, not me? only – Peter, not, he, he did he, – he literally did start the world tour yeah. and got not as much credit for – you should have. He went to Japan and gave those tournaments yeah. absolute legitimacy. He went to Asia and, and started that tour and, and encouraged guys to go and play it because he realised, as I tweeted yesterday, he realised that there were too many pro golfers in the world just to have one tour. Yeah. And and the and the world tour had to start. And he went out with his own presence and and played in those tournaments and, and gave them credibility and got the sponsors in and got players to come and and he created the Asian and the Japanese tour and and he, and he was the biggest star in Britain for a long time and he he recognised how important it was to do that. And he wasn't just sort of doing that and not saying anything at the same time, was he? He wrote, he wasn't afraid to criticise, you know, the US tour, etc. Here's something he wrote about the Australian Open, but I think it, it sort of says something about the man. Sporting championships that endure to be 100 years old should be held sacrosanct, protected in appropriate ways by their own particular sporting bodies, not thrown to the walls of commercialism by allowing the game's top players to be lured away by the smell of easy money. 
to schedule a particularly farcical form of golf such as a skins game against the Australian Open champion in its centenary year is a sorry indictment of the golf's world's scheduling. The US tour should be more sympathetic to the world's real golf fans. That's fairly cutting, isn't it? And well, that's true. And absolutely but, but, true. It's absolutely true. And uh, I, I read, did I read yesterday or someone said it yesterday? He played, he was in the Masters, he had an invitation to play the Masters, and instead, this is unimaginable to any, imagine any modern player doing this, he had an invitation to the Masters one year, and instead, he played the Indian Open. Yes, that's right. And in fact... And is, yeah, just for those who, let that sink in, just yeah, a little bit. It, yeah, but, you know, very much. Because he, he saw it more important to get the Indian Open up and running than to go and play Augusta. Play Augusta National. Um, that was in, I think, that Sports Illustrated piece that you linked to, Clay, which Actually, I'll put, was. On, I'll exactly put a link was, to yeah. it in the, yeah. in the yeah. show notes for, for this episode. Yeah. What a wonderful piece. And, in fact, I suppose that introduced me. I'd not known much about Thompson's wife, Mary, who sounds just like a delightful woman in that piece, Tom. Uh, Clay, so yeah. I've not met her, obviously, but it, it's talked about in the story. But um, Thompson writes this, just a couple of lines. I'm not even sure where it's from. It's just a couple of lines in the book. It says, I've never been one for showing off silver cups. You can't find any in any of my houses except the ones that my wife, Mary, has put flowers in. Yeah. <laughs> she, she talks about taking the trophies, doesn't she, and turning the engraved plates towards the wall so you can't yeah. see them. And she fills them up with water and puts flowers in them. Yeah. Wonderful. I remember going to his house once in wherever it was, doesn't matter. I was with Finchie. We'd played golf and we went back to his house and there was not a single hint in that house that he played golf. You would never have known the person who lived in that house was a golfer. There wasn't one indication anywhere that he was a golfer. Not a club lying around, not a golf book, not a picture on the wall, not a nothing. That's staggering, That, that he was a golfer, yeah. yeah. That is quite, yeah. really quite, I can't and, imagine that would be true for the most. And in fact, my auntie rang me yesterday and she and my uncle were very good friends with Mary and Peter and he spoke about his other life. They went walking together and they, they spent a lot of time together. And it was just he had a completely other life with other friends who didn't play golf. And, you know, it, it was golf was a completely separate. I mean, m- most of us, our lives are intertwined with golf and everything we do tends to be revolves around a, you know, in some form. But he had a complete other life away from golf. And he understood how important that was. Now, I've read this about other sort of top players is that the ability to compartmentalise might be one of the most important things about playing golf at the very top level. That sounds like a an absolute example of that, just to, you know, golf is here and that's what we do as work, but yeah. it, she talks about him loving classical music and her trying to talk to him and him shushing her. And not, a, right, not, yeah. not a lot of not a lot of us have got the courage to shush the wife, Clates. Uh, no, nineteen sixty-eight. I think I was talking about the tape machine. You have yeah, that's they? right. Yes, yeah, the tape probably machine. moved on from the, the vinyl records to the tape machine. The very sort of modern the, kind of stuff. The London Philharmonic playing through the house. Yeah, indeed. What sort of sense of humour did Peter Thompson have? Just dry, funny, very mm-hmm. dry. Yeah, classic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the wind got you there. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying. There were, there were so many funny Tomo well, stories. Well, you have before. a think. I, I interviewed Billy no, Dunk no. once uh, some years ago, and he never particularly liked Peter Thompson. No, from he, very, he, no he thought he was he very didn't. much a snob and stuck up. And he told me about an Australian PGA. I think it was a 36-hole yeah. final day. And yeah. that must have been at the Lakes. And as they walked off the first green where Billy had lipped one out from 20 feet or so for birdie, 
Thompson put his arm around Billy's shoulder and says, don't worry about it, son. It happened to me once. <laughs> that happened to me once, yeah. Dunk has hated him ever since. <laughs> that happened to me once, That's yeah. right. <laughs> It's a favourite of Bruce Young's also. And used at the right time. It's an absolutely brilliant and cutting line. Oh, I still use it. Yeah, <laughs> so that, 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 that happened to me once. It to me like once. Such a, but, it's, but it's so true. <laughs> of course it's it just so, Yeah, think of the only bloke who's ever missed a sh- And, of course, he's great line to – and people, if they think about what he was, that was why he was so clever – People thought about what he was saying rather than getting upset by it. Peter Fowler, who he, he won the World Cup with Grady at the end of 1989 in Spain. They, they, he played the PGA. They, they flew to Spain. It took him forever to get there. They got caught in a flood and flight delays, and it was a whole, the whole thing was a disaster. 36 holes. They, they lost two days. But Chuck won the individual, and they won the team's event. And they came back to the Australian Open, and Peter played – well at Kingston Heath, he finished third when Peter Senior won. And he saw Peter in the car park after the tournament. He said, Peter, he said, you've been watching me play on TV the last few weeks. He said, what do you think I can do to improve my game? And he said, shoot lower scores, Peter. And he walked off and then turned around and said, that's it, Peter. He said, shoot lower scores. And Chuck was like so angry. He said, he was, I can't believe what that bastard said to me. He said, fuck, you know, and he was angry with him. And then he said, he told me, he said, only about five years, ten years later, did I realise what he was telling me. Stop obsessing about your goal swing and go out and shoot lower scores. He said, of course, he was exactly right. Yeah. So I was just too dumb to figure out what he was telling me. Yeah. And, 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 and he had a different way of imparting that kind of wisdom. And, and if you figured out what he was telling you, you, you would, it would help you. But if you didn't figure it out, he wouldn't tell you the obvious thing. He would just, you know, he, he would Yeah, he had his own way of... of Imparting, telling you what he thought. Well, it's wisdom, yeah. and it's wisdom, isn't it? Yeah, it because is. I yeah. suppose there are shortcuts yeah. for for budding players in his writings. Aren't there? there are shortcuts. That's a shortcut there. Peter Fowler admitted yeah. himself. It took him five or ten years before he realized. But there was a shortcut right there, wasn't there? If he yeah. had the wherewithal and the understanding of what Thompson was saying, um, is that you know. Exactly. He, he's very big on that, Thompson, isn't he? That, that, that the swing is not the thing. It's, it's really not the swing. You know, yeah. you wouldn't have got there if you couldn't hit it. Um, somewhere near where you were aiming, uh, and the overcomplication is is uh, is a bit. just thinking about a different, a different time. I've just uh, I was just flicking through the book and I thought to myself, stop. So I picked a page here. It's called Nagel's Magic, and just this first paragraph tells you what different times were. In 1960, Kel Nagel and I were invited to defend our Canada Cup title in Ireland, and we were presented with first class tickets that we could use months before the event. I was in the US and Kel came along in May and joined me. In a week when there was a gap in the program, I said, come on, we'll go to the McGregor Warehouse in Dallas, Dallas and see what new clubs we can buy. Buy? Yeah. <laughs> buy. We were a complete, complete <laughs> fluke. I was actually on exactly the same page. Because keep going because it tells a great story. And, and, and I'll talk about a bit, bit about – I remember playing with him once. I had a Harry Busson driver, which was a beautiful driver. Harry Busson was the old pro at Walton Heath. He made beautiful drivers. Sam Torrance played with them for years and – and I, I love this driver. And he picked up and said, mm, he said, looks like a bit of a slicer to me. <laughs> and and he, he, was, he, he was big about being a, being a judge of a club. He was a great judge of a club. Anyway, you, you go on and read about it, and I'll, I'll tie it back to Sue O and what's happened to her in the last six weeks. Okay, so just keep going from there. So we opened a few boxes, yeah. drivers, three and four woods, and of course we had to pay. Cole picked out a beautiful set of woods and he immediately began to play better. The first week that he had those clubs, Cole was pipped by one shot for the Fort Worth Invitational Tournament by Julius Boros. Kel hadn't been playing well until then. In all honesty, he played something of a supporting role when, he, when we won the Canada Cup at Royal Melbourne, but suddenly he loomed like a real winner. 
couple of weeks later, I suggested he get rid of his irons, which had been made in Sydney and were really pretty weak. But Kel was intensely loyal, and he said, oh, no, they pay me to use these. I asked him what they were paying him, and after he told me, I said, Kel, you can win that in one day. Don't tie yourself down to something that's not the best you can get. I'm suspecting you want me to stop there. No, no, keep going. Uh, we had a practice round soon after with Bobby McAllister, an acquaintance of ours, and Bobby was trying out a new set of spalding irons. He told me they didn't suit him, so I asked if I could loan them to Kel. Kel had a hit with them, and it transformed him. He was suddenly a top player. We then had to convince Spalding to give Kel the clubs. It took a bit of convincing. They hadn't heard of Kel Nagel and didn't think he could win anything. But I spoke to the fellow and said, you'll be sorry if you let him slip out of your hands. Give him the clubs and let him play with them. Keep going? Yeah, absolutely. A week or two Great later... Story. Okay, a week or two later, we went to Ireland to play the Canada Cup. Kel played well and finished fourth, and next week was at the British Open at St Andrews. Armed with his new equipment and his newfound confidence and still with his magic putting and with me showing him how to keep out of the St Andrews bunkers and play second shots away from the flag sometimes, Kel won the Centenary Open. It was a shock to him and a shock to everybody else. But in my view, I nominated him. I finished ninth, four or five shots back. I couldn't putt like Kel. He was magic. When he finished, he had no way of making it through the crowd to his hotel but needed a jacket for the presentation. I'd finished some time earlier, and so I took off my jacket and gave it to him. In the picture taken of him holding the trophy, he is wearing my jacket. Oh, that's delightful, isn't it? I'm familiar with that story, but to reread yeah, it is a, wonderful, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's such a. But but he he was a great. He, he spoke about being a judge of a club, someone being able to judge a club and whether it was any good or not. Of course, in those days they weren't mixed and was, so, sorry, they weren't matched with the positions. That, that they are now. It was a much different business trying to find a good set of clubs then. But but he, he he would say now that modern players are not good judges of clubs. They just use what they're given and assume it's okay. And, of course, if it's okay in the track man and, and, and the numbers are fine, then that's fine. And, and the clubs today are so much better. I mean, I mean, it was hard to find clubs, and doing what Kel did was not uncommon. No. But you know, going back to Sue well, I mean, I, I told her the, the same thing. Seven weeks ago, I said, the clubs you're using are terrible. They're a shocking set of clubs. Get rid of them. And she put a new set of clubs in the bag, and she's won $270,000 since. Yeah. But she would have, she has no clue about golf clubs. She just uses what they give her and, and, and assumes it's okay. And Yeah. yeah. You know, well, most would be like that, I guess. Well, no, I mean, Tiger famously had never been that way. Um, I remember interviewing Tom Stites, who was the Nike club designer, and him talking about the amount of – testing and work he would do with Woods to come up with a set of clubs that he liked. But for the most part, I suspect the bulk of top players do do that, don't they, Clay? So they go and test a whole bunch, but there's not much in the way of input or... I don't know. But, and in fairness, you don't have to be as good a judge of a club as you no, no, of course um, not. did them. But because everyone was... I mean, Peter will talk about it. He was always looking for the magic driver or the... You know, the, yeah. he was all changing putters and changing irons and... He, he was one. He, he definitely believed in heavy clubs. He, he, everyone he thought had clubs that were too light. Mm-hmm. His clubs were D five or D six, incredibly heavy irons. And didn't because he, he didn't he lose one of his famous clubs. Somebody asked him once, you know, where's that sandwich? You hit that famous shot with it and open. So he said, well, I don't know. It's probably around here somewhere. <laughs> no idea where it was. It was. Well, he won, well he won that one of the first opens. He won. He John Letters, the club maker, gave him a set of clubs out of the boot of the car. He was. He, he was struggling to find clubs. He, he wasn't hitting well or something. And and typically he would, to deflect the blame from himself, he would blame the clubs and go and get a new set of clubs. So he went and got a set of John Letters clubs out of the boot of John Letters' car, <laughs> won the tournament with them, and then gave the clubs back gave to him them, on Sunday night. Gave them back. 
<laughs> it's extraordinary. Oh, speaking, of, yeah. speaking of wonderful stories, everyone would have heard this, but it's a fantastic story to hear it in Thompson's own words. It's always advisable to attend the last round of a tournament with a jacket. At the 1956 Open, which I won at Royal Liverpool, or Hoylake as it's called, I couldn't get back to the hotel to get my jacket. It was customary in those days to get dressed up to accept the first prize. A friend of mine, a captain from Royal Melbourne, Max Shaw, had a beautiful cashmere grey jacket. I asked if I could borrow it. It was about the right size. Over I went to get the prize. I thanked Max for his jacket and handed it back. And months later, he sent his jacket to the dry cleaners in Melbourne and found a cheque for £1,200 in the pocket. It was the first prize cheque, and I'd forgotten to get it out of the pocket. That tells us an awful lot of stuff, doesn't it? <laughs> it's... it's a, uh, yeah, as one can't imagine, uh, and just the fact that you know, there's a it actually gave you a check on the spot yeah. that you yeah. put in your pocket, and then I suppose take to the bank and deposit. How would well, that you, work? Well, you play in Asia, they gave you cash in Asia. I heard, I've heard that. That's extraordinary. Didn't didn't Norman talk about having money yeah, in his go, shoes and socks yeah, and they give you wads of cash? Yeah, put it in the back of the bag, and now of course it's all just digital. You know, you just wake up on. Tuesday morning and, you know, punch in the bank course, number and away you go. You think about, I mean, he, he told me once, he said, of course, when, when I won the Open, you only won, you, you, you won 1,200 pounds. He said, of course, you could buy a house of 1,200 pounds back then. Yeah, yeah. Still, you couldn't buy a house and a jet. And the, no, the endorsement, and jet. The endorsement yeah. money that came from that. There's some pictures in the book here, uh, Clay, so I keep going. And then one thing really stands out to me, nary a logo on Peter Thompson's clothing. Um, I know he wasn't sort of anti-sponsorship, but I suppose it points to what a different time. He's never wearing a hat, almost never. Um, never wore a hat. Well, players only start wasn't to ward off skin cancer. It was to they figured out that the most valuable piece of property they had to sell was the the, the, the front of their hat. The That's why they wear hats now. Yeah, yeah. So true, no, yeah. no logos, but but you never saw. I mean, do you ever see Nicholas with a logo? I suppose. Well, you, you did. It was his own logo, the Golden Bear logo. But, uh, that's true, yeah. yeah. You know, players look like Formula One drivers now, but... Yeah. The Korean and, lady players in particular got stuff on the back of the shirts now, Clays. They really do look like Formula One everywhere. drivers in that but, sense, but, yeah. But, but you assume that if Peter had played in this era, he would have... He would have had some sponsors. ...had a logo or two somewhere because that was how you... Make, you know, that's one of the biggest sources of income yeah. off the course that you can have. Be tasteful, though. He would have had, he'd have a tasteful logo, if you know, no question. Yeah. What a dapper dresser he was, Clays. The other thing that stands out from the photos, what a, what a beautiful time for fashion and... Um, yeah, just a very dapper sort of dress. Always looked very smart, Thompson, didn't he, uh, on the course? Well, that was one Nida's influence too. Yeah. But, one because one was a very flashy dresser and yeah. he realised that was important. And yeah, yeah, fantastic. He, he did that. Fantastic stuff. Um, it's, of course, sad that Peter's gone, but not unexpected, I suppose, Clades. He'd been unwell for a while. How, how, how much had you sort of had to do with Peter in the last four or five years? We knew his health was deteriorating. I, I, I'd hardly seen him at all. You know, I, I heard he, he wasn't well and... He didn't, you know, he didn't play much anymore, and he was spent a lot of time at home. And so the end. I mean, I, I guess it's, you know, this, this um, people living older has consequences. Yeah. For, you, you know, the, your body or your mind or both sort of go before. You know, you know people, the old three score years and ten, which is a time to remind us of Hubert Green, of course, who died. He died, of course, yeah. the same day. I think it was yeah. seventy one, which was three. Three score years and ten was seen as the standard sort of life. So now that people are living so much longer, it's inevitable that, that, that well, not inevitable, but that, that, that they struggle. Many of them struggle with their health in their in their mm. later years. And Peter was certainly one who suffered with that. But yeah. you know, it was a 
an incredible man and a great player and someone who understood how important he was to golf and how he dedicated his life to it and gave so much back to it and and gave so much back to it in Australia. He, yeah. he said to me once, I, I can never understand why these blokes go and live in America and stay there. I, I can understand why they play there, but I don't understand why they don't come home. Well, there's something yeah. to be said. Just to, I was thinking about that then. So my own sort of life is, you know, dabbling in and out of this golf riding business for the last twenty or so years. He, he, Thompson's been a constant at both important and, as you pointed out earlier, quite dull and insignificant events alike. You would see Peter Thompson. As I said, I only ever interviewed him the once uh, when Sam Snead died, but he was always around. He'd been a part of the fabric of the game, and, and he never needed to be. He has a stature in the game where he didn't need to do all those things, did he? And that's, I guess, what's so impressive about it. I, I recall, I think the last time I saw him, he sent apologies to Golf New South Wales when they renamed the New South Wales Open Trophy the Nagel Cup, and they had an event at Pimble where Kel had been the pro, obviously, and had an yeah. attachment to the club. And uh, I think Thompson sent his apologies because he, he, he was just he was beginning to get ill, I think, and he couldn't travel. But that's only been in the last four or five years. Prior to that, even as recently as four or five years ago, he would turn up to the golf riders' dinner, wouldn't he? He would always be at the Australian Open. No, he was always there, everywhere. Um, just to, it, it, the last time I saw him play, we were in the grandstand at the Open in 2015 at St Andrews, where oh, he played that. The champions of the whole match. thing, yeah. He played with Ernie, and, and Mary had said he was, she was worried about him going, and she was worried about him playing, and someone put us put a tweet up about that swing he made off the first tee which was it was shorter which he would have hated because he hated short swings uh, that that um it was a beautiful move and um he hit two woods up short of the burn at the first and pitched it across and then i he hit a hybrid for his third shot into the 18th at st andrews which is pretty unimaginable given how short that you know guys were driving on the green but mm. still had such a that, that was the last time i saw him hit a shot but mm. still such, such a well, I think if you if you've got, if you've had a beautiful motion, you've always got a beautiful motion, and he always had that. Yeah, he yeah, could always make it look simple and easy. And the fact that the ball only went 130 yards or 40 yards in the air didn't really matter much at all. It was, it was still watching a beautiful player play golf, even though he couldn't, in one sense, play the game anymore. He could absolutely still play it. Just that, you know, the fact that he couldn't carry the burning team for St Andrews didn't mean that he couldn't play golf anymore because he could really play. That's funny, though, isn't it, Clancy? You, you're right about that. I remember about 15 years ago on some sort of a golf trip somewhere that I was writing a piece about, sort of a travel piece. There was a guy on the trip, he must have been in his early 70s, who was playing off 17 or 18 at the time. But he'd been a one or two marker in his time several years before. And he must have hit three or four shots on that trip. Same sort of thing. He obviously didn't have the, the power and the, the swing or the fluidity of the swing. But he hit three or four shots on that trip that only a good golfer can hit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Only a good golfer can see and then hit. Um, and you can see when you play. You might not have had the distance anymore or the, the club head speed, but he could still play golf. He could still see the game the way it should be played at a great level. So you, you're quite right about that. What we, we probably should wrap it up soon, although we could go for a very long time. What do you Here's think? one on John Daly. Yes, Just go for it. Quick. John Daly would be better off to leave his driving clubs in his locker. But when you're John Daly and the sponsors play plenty and the people come to watch, well, you have to be John Daly, don't you? Otherwise, there's no point. It would be like paying Pavarotti for a concert and he declined to sing the top notes. The world would complain. (laughs) (laughs) What an astute observation this book is for. Now, I noticed that um, Jeff Slattery, Slattery Media, published the book A Life in Golf. Uh, You offered to send one off 
to Phil Blackmar and Jeff jumped in and said, actually, they're out of print at the moment, but you can get a digital copy. I want. I would hope that they might do a reprint. This is so, – Jeff is going to reprint it. So, so the crazy thing was this book didn't sell very well. It's, it did okay, but they tried to sell it in Britain and astoundingly they said people not interested, not to, to Australian, not British enough. It's like – What? I won five British <laughs> opens. And, what? Well, I guarantee if you threw – 15 copies on the on the desk at every pro shop in Britain that they would sell out. And, but anyway, they're reprinting it, which is great because it it's is a great, great book. And, yeah, and, and people, I mean, for any young player who's listening to this, get this book and read it and think about what he's saying. And if you disagree with most of it, that's he would say that's a good thing because it will send you thinking about mm-hmm. whether you're right or whether he's right. And I would ask any young player who asks, who knows more about golf, you or Peter Thompson. Yeah, absolutely. Because right. it's a pretty obvious answer to that yeah. question it feels a bit similar this book to me to spirit of st andrews which we did that incredibly well received podcast about uh, a few weeks back though yeah when we did the podcast about the book spirit of st andrews but this is a similar sort of book you can pick it up open to any page and you'll find a nugget you can go the rest of your day thinking about something you've seen on that page that thompson said they're very different books obviously and the things they do but it's that style of book isn't it it's the one that you have on the bookshelf just pull it out while you're sitting at your desk Read three pages, put it back, and that will give you something to think about for a week, won't it? Appearance fees. That's what he said about appearance fees. We're going back to something. The payment of appearance fees in events that purport to be championships, in inverted commas, where everyone starts on an even footing, has never been an embarrassment. The bounty of it since 1953 has been the making of the US PGA Tour. Places such as Australia, Brazil, and Morocco have also come to the temptation to buy someone's appearance. Is demeaning. Demeaning. What a beautiful yeah. word to end a sentence on. It's yeah. true. It's yeah. demeaning. I just found something. You talked about him hitting shanks before. It's extraordinary to think that somebody could write this about themselves. I hit shanks. That's his opening three. Yeah. I hit yeah. shanks. Quite a few. In fact, I invented a test at the PGF factory. I was hitting a lot of shanks with my pitching wedge, and I decided there had to be a reason. I reckoned that the center of the club, its sweet spot, was not out in the middle of the blade. It was somehow near the neck, the hosel, or that part of the club into which the shaft is inserted. To prove it, I had a device held by two screws, two screw points from a hanging beam, and then suspended a plumb bob. If the plumb bob went through the center of the iron's face, you had a good wedge. But often, with these sets that were being made, the line went through the hosel. So there you go. He did yeah. hit shanks. He was open enough to admit it and hit said about shanks, trying to uh, yeah. correct it. Can you imagine writing that about yourself? I hit shanks. It's almost like the first shanks. line from, a, from an AA meeting, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> I'm Peter Thompson and I hit shanks. Well, probably fewer people hit shanks because they did what he was talking about there and they've got the centre of the club back in the, in, in the centre of the face. Well, they've got the sweet spot of the club in the centre of the face as opposed to closer to the neck because all the weight was in the neck. Uh-huh. Because you know the neck needed to be heavy to to hold the shaft in. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know if you, if you go through the history of someone explained to me the history of golf club making all the way back to you know the eighteen hundreds when the biggest problem was attaching the shaft the shaft into the head, and uh, and the necks on the irons were so heavy and so strong to to hold the shaft in, which which moves the the sweet point the, the sweet spot on the face so much closer to the. To the Left edge of the yeah, club. That, that's right. Well, you can imagine, I mean, particularly the earlier handmade golf clubs, you know, in the earlier, attaching a head to a shaft and then exerting the sort of force that you do on a golf ball would be extraordinarily difficult to get everything to not move, wouldn't it? It's quite amazing when you think about it that they were able to do it five yeah. and 600 years ago. Here's something beautiful to, 
to read. It's not, it is just not true that I hate Americans, but as their rival in golf, I believe in keeping them at arm's length. I don't want to get any closer to men who I know I'm out to beat them, just as they are anxious to hammer me into the ground. Such a relationship would be an artificial and phony one and detrimental to my mental attitude. Because, of course, I think it was Palmer who said, you know, that he enjoyed beating everybody, but as an American, he enjoyed beating Peter Thompson just yeah. a little bit more. He was not... He wasn't fondly received in America, Thompson, was he? Well, like Sevy, they didn't understand him because he was different. They were different and they saw the world differently. And talking about rivals, and there's a great Sam Sneed line. Uh, to an innocent, um, Sneed could be blunt to foolish questions too. To an innocent who opinioned, gee, it must be really tough to pay the US tour. Sneed with scarcely a glance replied, yep, it sure is. And after a pregnant pause came, if you can't play, <laughs> it just about summed it all up. Uh, here's why Americans didn't like him. I was never held in awe by Augusta, the home of the US Masters. It was built on what I always thought was a very poor piece of land, just a gentle slope, what we in Australia would call a billy goat track. <laughs> How about this? I learned to play the American game over there between 1951 and 1960, and it revolted me. I've always regarded the bounce of the ball as the third dimension in golf, but the ball is not allowed to bounce in America. It is sickening to see the game reduced to something like archery or darts. Golf only becomes really difficult and challenging on hard courses. It is then that skill, not strength, counts for everything. If the ground is allowed to become firm by the natural processes of the weather, then the ball will bounce as it should and as it was intended to do. What he's saying there, I think most of those who will be listening to this would agree with, but you can understand why putting it so bluntly might not have endeared into a lot of Americans, can't you? Can't you? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it's uh, really quite amazing. What will be your enduring? Will you have an enduring memory of Peter Thompson? Do you think, Clates, or will he be a figure that sort of just pops into the into your mind for the rest of your life when a situation arises that makes you think of him? Yeah, my, my well, his swing and such a my one of my, one of my enduring memories will be of me being. Such an idiot as a 15-year-old <laughs> watching him at Yarra Yarra on the practice field. I can still see it and saying to the guys with such an old-fashioned swing, you know, what an idiot youth can be. But, um, yeah, just how he thought about the game, how he, how he played it, how he, how he loved it, just how, how he was really. Mm. We've all been lucky to be alive in an era when Peter Thompson was about, wasn't he? We'll certainly be—he'll certainly be sadly missed. I mean, the game will be poorer for him not being present. But but what a legacy he's left, Gladstone. I go back to it, particularly his writing. I think you've been lucky yeah. enough to know him personally, but we can all know a little bit of Peter Thompson from his writing, and I think that's just sort of so important, isn't it? It is. And uh, uh, what well, we should we should finish that one last. Story. I was I was at, in the press tent at the Australian Open at the Lakes a few years ago. Kathy Shearer was there was there was a kid who made the semi final of the Australian Amateur, who was doing some work experience with Kathy in the press town. We were talking about Bob Shearer, who'd won the Open in 1982. And I realised this kid had no idea who Bob Shearer was. I said, "You don't know who Bob Shearer is, do you?" He said, "Never heard of him." I said, "You know who Peter Thompson is, don't you?" And he said, "Yeah, he's the golf course designer." Oh God! It's like, yeah, I'm like, I'm like wow, come on, come on. Wow. <laughs> so, you know. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's staggering how little interest kids have in the history of the game. But, but, but if you're interested in golf and you don't know Peter Thompson or who he is or what he did, then you need to read his book and understand what an important part he was of yeah. the foundation of the game the way it is today. Really, 
for, for those of us who think for those who think that we on state of the game and you know there's a whole bunch of people on Twitter who've sort of formed a bit of an echo chamber about all of this sort of stuff spirit of St Andrews and Thompson's book and all that sort of stuff once you read it you understand don't you Clates we all start out thinking that people like us are just wanking on about unimportant stuff and don't know what we're talking about that modern is better and you know the, the game's better than it is. the athletes are better everything about the modern player is better than the previous you know none of that's completely true is it the Golf is fascinating because there's so much history and so much yeah. wonderful stuff to be found in you know in, in players and and books like this one from from Thompson. Um, yeah, just extraordinary. Do yourself a favour, people, buy it. And as Clayton says, if you don't agree with it, that's fine. Peter would actually be quite happy for you not to agree with it as long as you're thinking. And that was, I guess, that's kind of the point, isn't it? As long as yep, you're thinking absolutely. about, as long as you think about the game, Clayton. It's been uh, been fantastic to catch up with you. Uh, sad. The occasion, um, but wonderful to hear some of your memories of Peter and to be, get it, get back in touch with a book that I hadn't read for a couple of years, to reread it this morning and last night. It was absolutely fantastic. But appreciate you taking the time today. Looking forward to catching up soon. Thanks, mate. Enjoyed it. Absolutely. Episode 78, I think I said, of uh, State of the Game in the books. Uh, thanks for the tuning in. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed talking. We'll be back to do it all again soon here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.